Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This is an iHeart Original. On March 20th, 1699, the Warden of England's Royal Mint received a letter. Most merciful sir, I am going to be murdered. Perhaps you don't think so, but it's true. I shall be murdered. And the worst of all, I will be murdered in the face of justice, unless I am rescued by your merciful hands. The letter was an appeal to the warden's conscience. It went on. My offending you has brought this upon me. Nobody can save me but you. I hope God will move your heart with mercy and pity to do this thing for me. It was signed... Your near-murdered, humble servant, W. Chaloner. W. Chaloner was one William Chaloner, a con man who at one time had been the most successful counterfeit coin maker London had ever seen. But now he was awaiting execution at Newgate Jail, the stinking hellhole of a prison built into the ancient Roman wall of the city of London. The warden, whose job it was to track down counterfeiters and who'd hunted Chaloner for years, never bothered to write back. Two days after he wrote that letter, Chaloner was dragged from the jail through more than two miles of London's foul, mud-filled streets to the Tyburn tree. This was not an actual tree, but rather the name given to the wooden gallows erected at the site of the Tyburn Brook, 
at what's now Marble Arch in London. This would have been an open space, a field, and on hanging days, a heaving mass of humans all clamoring to watch the bad guys die. Chaloner arrived at the gallows, filthy, splattered with mud and whatever else had been thrown at him along the way. He was terrified, he was angry, and he was sober. By now, after months of living in Newgate, he didn't even have enough money to buy a swallow of gin. In his hands, Chaloner clutched a sheaf of papers, fodder for a pamphlet declaring that he was the victim of a frame-up. He yelled to anyone who would listen that he was innocent. I am innocent! That he was murdered by perjury and injustice and pretense of law. And? By the warden of the mint himself. It didn't matter. In his last moments, Chaloner went quiet. He mounted the ladder. The cap was placed over his weeping eyes and the noose over his head and around his neck. And as hundreds of people watched... Chaloner dangled and kicked until the blood vessels in his face popped, until the breath was choked from his lungs. Gravity did its thing. After his body was pulled down from the scaffold, he was publicly disemboweled. His head might have ended up on a spike on the London Bridge. We're not entirely sure, but That's what happened to the people who were executed for counterfeiting. And it was all because of one man, the doggedly determined, completely ruthless, utterly meticulous Warden of the Royal Mint. The Warden of the Royal Mint was the man charged with making the country's coin, the actual physical silver and gold that fueled England's engine of commerce. The warden was also charged with protecting it, with keeping it safe from counterfeiters and clippers. And this warden was very good at his job, putting dozens of people in jail, shutting down coining operations left and right, and, as in the case of Mr. Chaloner, sending counterfeiters to the gallows without a second thought. So who was this ruthless detective? This hard-bitten crook catcher totally unmoved by the pleas of a desperate man? It was Isaac Newton. Yes, that Isaac Newton. For iHeartRadio, I'm Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie, and this is Newton's Law, an iHeart original podcast. Episode one, The Warden and the Con Man. I'm standing outside the courtyard of the British Library, just off of Euston Road. 
Now, normally, this courtyard is full of people. There's a coffee shop in there, and there's loads of people usually out sitting on the benches, enjoying some sun on a coffee break in between researching. Now, right now, because of coronavirus, it's only open to pre-booked visitors. But just over the wall, I can see the giant statue of Isaac Newton. Now, this statue, I must have passed it hundreds of times going to the library to do research. And I've never really thought about it, never really noticed it. The statue depicts Newton bent over in a really rather uncomfortable looking position. And he's got a compass and he's determining the geometry of the universe. It's a testament to Newton's scientific genius, but it absolutely leaves out the other half of his life, the half of the life that most people don't really know about. What do you know about Isaac Newton? Discovered gravity. He was good in physics and he invented like the three principles of gra gravity. Yeah. That's as much as I know. <laughs> I failed science, to be honest with you. Yeah, very smart guy. Um, smarter than me, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Do you know anything else about the rest of his life? I have no idea about him as personality. But did you know anything about Newton's life after he discovered gravity? Uh, got rich. <laughs> got rich? Well... He was making money, lots of it, literally, as warden of the Royal Mint. And he did get a big salary increase, too. But this story is about more than just Isaac Newton's lucrative second career. Everything that Newton touched, everything that he was involved in, became part of the fabric of our modern world. And not just because we use his calculations every day to keep satellites in orbit and our smartphones running. His story unfolds at a time when the structures that we inhabit now are just being built. We're talking about, and we will be talking about in this podcast, what actually is money? We're talking about the origins of print media and its power to change political discourse and policy, and about the meaning of criminal justice in a time when there are courts, but no police. But it's still a weird story. Newton made this big career change after his most consequential intellectual achievement, but arguably at a time when he still had more to give. So I started with this question. Why would Isaac Newton leave the cozy confines of academia and a career of remarkable success to go chase criminals? Act one, an object at rest. I keep the subject constantly before me till the first dawnings open slowly, little by little, into the full and clear light. Newton had been an academic since 1661 when he first came to Trinity College at Cambridge University. At the time, he was an intellectually adventurous 19-year-old fresh off a Lincolnshire farm. Cambridge University, academically, did not have a good reputation during the 17th and 18th centuries. That's Dr. Patricia Farah, Cambridge historian and author of Life After Gravity. Some foreign visitors came and they looked at Oxford and Cambridge and they said, oh, it's just 
ridiculous. All the all the books are growing mouldy in the libraries. A lot of the professors scarcely gave any lectures, and quite a few of them lived down in London. There weren't any female students, so the whole community was male. It was a very sort of closed community. Cambridge's limitations didn't bother Newton at first. Newton was already brilliant. He'd taught himself higher-order mathematics in six months. By 1665, he'd already formulated his famous theory of gravity, although it would be years before he published it. And he wasn't bothered by the lack of social activities. If anything, he probably preferred avoiding women and drinking and other people. Honestly, Newton was a bit of a prig. Here's what he wrote to a fellow student in 1661. It is commonly reported that you are sick. Truly, I am sorry for that. But I am much more sorry that you got your sickness by drinking too much. I earnestly desire you to first repent of your having been drunk and then to seek to recover your health. Fun guy. What Cambridge really gave Newton was time to do the one thing he wanted to do. Study. To cut a glass, take a plain glass, hold it upside downward over a candle. Newton had questions, hundreds, thousands of questions about everything. Take such meat as they love as wheat. And he explored those questions in notebooks. Lots and lots of notebooks. And sprinkle it where birds. Uh, The manner of the extraction of roots in pure and affected powers is very much alike. Especially when the essential mix that there be no ambiguity and all fractions. Newton was also fearless when it came to experimentation. This is a man who stuck a bodkin, basically a large needle, into his own eye to observe changes in his perception of color. He also spent a bit of time literally staring at the sun. I saw only the sun before me, so that I could neither write nor read. But to recover the use of my eyes, shut myself up in my chamber, made dark for three days together, and used all means to direct my imagination from the sun. Ironically, one of his notebook entries concerns things Things hurtful hurtful for for the the eyes. eyes. Garlic, onions, leeks, overmuch lettuce, going too sudden after meat, hot wines, cold air, much sleep after meat, uh, fire, uh, much weeping, and... uh, watching. Newton's assistant during his later Cambridge years knew him as a near recluse, as the original model of the absent-minded but super-focused professor. I never knew him take any recreational pastime, either in riding out to take the air, walking, bowling, or any other exercise, whatever, thinking all hours lost that were not spent in his studies, to which he kept so close that he seldom left his chamber. Newton's intellect set him apart. It made it difficult for him to connect with his peers or anyone else. But if he was lonely, he didn't let on. At the age of 27, he'd taken over the Lucasian Professorship of Mathematics. These days, this is one of the most prestigious professorships in the world, like Stephen Hawking, Charles Babbage, and, well, Isaac Newton prestigious. He was only the second person to hold the position, so it didn't yet have the reputation that it has now. But still, it was a pretty good gig. 
not least because it gave him room, board, and 120 pounds a year in exchange for teaching one course of lectures every three terms, regardless of whether anyone showed up to hear them. By all reports, he was an absolutely appalling lecturer. There's a a joke that two undergraduates saw him in the street and they nudged each other and one, one of them said, there goes the man who lectures to the walls. And what they meant by that was that he had to give a lecture, it was compulsory, but no students bothered to attend. And so he just spoke to the empty room. When he wasn't lecturing to empty rooms, Newton, among other things, designed and crafted his own telescope. This was a major accomplishment at a time when instruments like that were at the very bleeding edge of new technology. They were complicated to make and very valuable. But Newton was impatient. If I'd have waited for other people to make my tools and things, I should never have made anything of it. It was this telescope that, in 1672, got Newton into the Royal Society, the foremost club of natural philosophers and scientists in the country. This was a big deal. Newton was now an acknowledged genius, at least among people who knew what that looked like. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Now, Newton might not have been this humble, really. I mean, he did think he was smarter than everyone else because he was. But he was also frequently plagued by self-doubt, which was one of the reasons he hated publishing his work. Newton was, like most other actual human beings, complicated. Newton's appointment to the Royal Society began wrenching him out of the isolation of Cambridge. Corresponding with other scholars and scientists, many in London, people who understood what he was talking about, at least most of the time, planted a seed. I do not only esteem it a duty to concur with them in the promotion of real knowledge, but a great privilege. Instead of exposing discourses to a prejudiced and censorious multitude, by which means many truths have been baffled and lost, I may, with freedom, apply myself to so judicious and impartial an assembly. Meaning? People get him. Finally. If becoming a fellow made him a genius, then his magnum opus, Principia Mathematica, made him a rock star. Why should that apple always descend perpendicularly to the ground? Why should it not go sideways or upwards, but constantly to the Earth's center? Principia was published in 1687 when Newton was 44. It described his laws of motion and theory of gravity and was as close as anyone had gotten at this point to glimpsing the inner workings of the universe. Assuredly, the reason is that the Earth draws it. There must be a drawing power in matter. And the sum of the drawing power in the matter of the Earth must be in the Earth's centre. After the book was published, he became well known amongst a narrow group of elite mathematicians. He became known all over Europe for the brilliance of his work, but only amongst uh, people who were mathematically powerful enough to understand the import of what he'd written. The publication of Principia thrust Newton into the intellectual limelight. But back in Cambridge, he was still barely understood. Newton once wrote to his niece, 
I overheard a student say, There goes the man that has written a book that neither he nor anybody else understands. <laughs> they were talking about me. Me? Then, in 1689, Newton was elected Cambridge's Member of Parliament, so he lived in London for the better part of a year. How this happened and why, well, that's another story. But when he returned to the university, it was even more apparent. There was nothing in Cambridge for him, not intellectually, not socially, nothing. So by the early 1690s, after 35 years, Newton wanted out of Cambridge. I fear no one understands me here. The books grow moldy in their libraries. It is too small, too mean. But London. London. That's where everything was happening. And that's where Newton wanted to be. So Newton started looking around for a new job. Or rather, he got some of his powerful friends to look for him. Frankly, nobody's getting high-paying jobs in the 17th century because they were qualified for them. Newton's first law of motion states that an object will stay at rest unless acted upon by an external force. And it was only when the Earl of Halifax wrote to him and said, I found you this wonderful job as Warden of the Mint. It it pays £500 a year. This new job came with a much better salary. And, the Earl of Halifax promised, the Mint practically ran itself. And Newton went down to London the next day and said, yes, I would love to be Warden of the Mint. He went back to Cambridge, packed up all his bags. A few weeks later, he was down to London and hardly went back to Cambridge again. On May 2nd, 1696, Newton left Cambridge. He never looked back, really. Reams of letters between him and his friends and family and professional contacts still exist. But there are exactly zero from him to anyone at Cambridge after he left for London. It would have taken Isaac Newton two days, maybe three, to reach London by horse or stagecoach. It had been a wet winter followed by a wet spring, and the roads would have been plugged with mud. As he inched towards the city, he may have imagined his new life there. He could work a few days a week, if that, devote the rest of his time to research, to spending time in coffee shops and in conversation with other brilliant people, to being a universally acknowledged genius in the greatest city in the world. When he arrived, he'd no longer be a dusty Cambridge scholar. He'd emerge into the filthy, crowded air of the city, a new man, a London man. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Act 2. The Center of Gravity. The road Newton was traveling would have become more crowded and busier the closer he got to London. From the top of one of the hills outside the city, if it had been a clear day, he might have been able to see the Tower of London, the home of the Royal Mint. There it is. London was only 65 miles away from Cambridge, but it might as well have been in a completely different universe. London had started as a Roman settlement on the banks of the Thames in the first century, a roughly square mile planted behind defensive walls, the remains of which still gave it shape. By the time Newton arrived, however, it was already swallowing up the farms and villages outside the original walls. The fields were quickly being replaced by homes and streets and markets. Newton would have entered the old Roman city, what's called the City of London with a capital C, through one of the northern gates, and then he would have made his way through the winding streets to the tower. Now, the Tower of London is not a single tower. It's actually a fortified complex of stone buildings that were built on the banks of the Thames in the 11th century. The Royal Mint had been located at the tower since 1279, sandwiched between the inner and outer curtain walls on the west side of the complex. The tower was a busy place. It was home to a garrison, an armory, and of course, a prison for important criminals. There was even a zoo there with lions and pumas. The mint's location at the tower meant that it could be heavily guarded. No one could enter or leave without being stopped and checked by armed guards. This was the image of the mint that the government wanted to broadcast, that it was safe in the most impenetrable fortress in the country, under guard, and now run by the smartest man in the world. Newton unpacked his bags in his new home inside the Mint. The job came with lodgings, at least until he could find somewhere nicer, less smelly, less noisy. But if Newton stood on the tower walls, he'd have seen the murky River Thames lapping at the stone below him. Across the river to the south, he would have seen Suffolk, the pleasure district known for playhouses and prostitutes. And he would very likely not have been a frequent visitor south of the river. But take the river west, further inland, 
and he would have been in marshy Westminster, home to Parliament and the seat of the country's political power. Go east, and he'd have been in the warehouses and docks, the places built to accommodate the country's increasingly global trade. And just outside his walls, London. Big, bustling, messy, beautiful London. A city where shacks, hovels, shared walls with palaces and mansions, where the desperately poor walked the same streets that the wealthy were carried on sedan chairs through. It was already one of the largest cities in the world, home to more than 600,000 people. And it was still growing. It is too close and loud in here. I can't think. I must walk. If Newton left the tower and took a walk, he'd see a city in the throes of modernization. London had been dealt two serious blows in the 1660s when Isaac Newton was still finding his feet in Cambridge. First, several bouts of the plague killed 15 to 20% of the city of London's population. And then, the Great Fire in 1666 burnt down 80% of the city, medieval London, within the walls. But London wasn't down for long. In the years since it had rebuilt, was rebuilding. Just up the street from Newton's new digs, London's print media industry was taking root on Fleet Street. This area was buoyed by rising demand for published words in pamphlets, and newspapers and broadsides, by cheaper printing technologies, and increasing freedom in what could be printed. The latest broadsides and pamphlets. Read about it here, good sir. Cheaper than travel. Stories about witches. Lots of stories about witches. The Sussex dragon, a most terrible sea serpent. Bit of bone in half. Including, as we'll see, attacks on the mint. A new proposal to address the deplorable state of the coinage. None of your fake coins, good sirs. But while Newton is getting to know the streets of his new home, he really ought to keep an eye on his purse. Because, of course, the old industries were still there. Among them, crime in all its myriad forms. Crime had always existed in London, of course, but as the city grew, crime rates did too. This makes sense, right? More people, more opportunity, more crime. London was also a city with incredible rates of poverty, which made criminals out of people who probably wouldn't have been otherwise. But, and here's the thing, while there are courts and severe punishments if you're caught, there's no agency trying to stop people from committing crimes or actively trying to catch them. So it's kind of a good time to be a criminal especially an entrepreneurial one like our friend, the near-murdered humble servant, William Challoner. When Newton left Cambridge, craving intellectual understanding and fellowship, or literally anything that wasn't Cambridge, he had no idea that the London he was moving to was Challoner's world. A world of cutthroats and quacks, of charlatans and con men, and of course, counterfeiters. London is the city of opportunity, and it's not just an opportunity for properly Cambridge or Oxford trained, um, professionally clever people. London was this magnet for the entire countryside. 
That's Tom Levinson, science historian and author of Newton and the Counterfeiter, the unknown detective career of the world's greatest scientist. Kids or men and women who wanted to escape whatever whatever circumstances they were in, in the agricultural world that was most of England, uh, would come to London and they would try and find work. There were more opportunities, though many of them were perhaps not viewed on with joy by the, the actual authorities. You look at a man like William Challoner, who would come to play quite a role in Isaac Newton's life. He came to London and started hustling. William Challoner, like Newton, was not a London native. He was from Warwickshire. His family was working class, poor. His father was a weaver. Now, we know some of what we know about William Challoner thanks to this anonymous biography a short view of the life of William Challoner. Written about him shortly after his execution. These kinds of biographies of notable criminals were fairly common at the time, just as they are now. But this one does a really lovely job of being simultaneously appalled and impressed by Challoner. According to the biography, although Challoner was evidently a bright kid, he channeled that intelligence into, quote, some unlucky rogue's trick or other. From early on. His father couldn't take it anymore, so he sent young William to learn a trade in Birmingham, then a fast-growing market town about 100 miles from London. Challoner was apprenticed to a nailmaker. But nailmaking was deadly dull and made even more so by the increasing mechanization of the process. So a number of these bored nailmakers, young William included, turned to Birmingham's other versioning industry, making counterfeit coins. Birmingham makers specialized in what were called groats, silver-ish coins with a face value of four pence. Groats weren't commonly made, officially, that is, but they were easy to counterfeit. You could do it if you had access to blacksmithing tools and metals, usually pewter or brass, and just a little bit of silver. Challoner stayed in Birmingham long enough to pick up the basics of metalworking. Armed with a new skill, although definitely not the one his father had in mind, Challoner left Birmingham for London in the late 1680s. He set out on, quote, St. Francis's mule, that is, on foot, and probably with nothing more than the clothes on his back and his considerable capacity for rogue's tricks. It would have taken William Challoner much more than two days to reach London. But when he got there, he was ready to forge a new future. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. 
This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Act 3. Equal and Opposite. Can I interest you in a slide ruler? Fountain pen? Quill? Silk ribbons, pretty silk ribbons, all colours. Finest Huguenot silk weaving here, miss. Oak calling. Quills. Parchments. In 1690, in swinging London, you could buy a lot of exciting things. And a tin watch somehow containing a dildo in it was one of them. Tin dildo watches... Get your tin dildo watches here. Now, I have no idea what a watch containing a dildo actually looked like or what service it was meant to provide or who would have bought it. All of that is totally lost to time. But should you be looking for such an item, you might have bought it from William Chaloner. Can I interest you in a dildo watch made of the finest tin? This is where young Chaloner landed after he pitched up in London looking for new opportunities. Chaloner wasn't the only peddler selling oddities, but he was one of the smarter kids on the block. Here's Tom Levinson again. He was basically a a really smart street kid who started trying to make money any way he could, and he really didn't care about legal niceties. Chaloner's metalworking skill with the tin dildo watches was enough to get him noticed. He thereby picked up a few loose pence and looser associates, according to his biography. But Chaloner had his sights set on bigger things. Not long after, he and a newfound friend decided to set themselves up as piss-pot prophets and quack doctors. Do you have a pain in your tummy, an ache in your head? I'll have a look at your piss and send you to bed. Piss-pot prophets were itinerant or street corner analysts, for lack of a better word, who would look at the contents of your chamber pot and tell you what was wrong with you. Quack doctors meant then more or less what it means now, although it largely applied to people who sold what they claimed were medicines or salves. Salves! The word came from the Dutch quack solver, which means solve hawker, and it implied a lot of shouting. Chaloner nailed the shouting bit, but then he set himself up as a master doctor, meaning someone who'd actually studied to be a physician. Given the state of medical practice at the time, not much differentiated a charlatan from a real physician. However, Chaloner was most definitely not qualified to dispense medical advice. What Chaloner did have, according to his biographer, was a gift. The greatest stock of impudence and the best knack at tongue padding. 
He was a talker. He was a charmer. And this gift paid off so well that he was able to get himself some fine lodgings, quite a feat in London at the time and now. For a little while, Chaloner had a great side scam going where he'd discover stolen goods for people who'd been robbed, collecting a reward every time. He continued for some time, till being suspected to be concerned in the robbery himself, he was forced to leave his fine lodgings and that learned profession and seek some old garret to repose his carcass in. After he had to leave his fancier digs, Chaloner set up in Hatton Garden, just outside the London Wall. This seems like a setback, but Chaloner, according to his biographer, was in possession of a, quote, working brain. And it was here that Chaloner learned the final skills he needed to make it big time. In his drafty garret, Chaloner starts working as a Japaner. Asian lacquer work was all the rage at the time, but it was really expensive and rare. Japaning was a way of faking the shiny furniture and cabinetry. This got Chaloner into gilding, applying a gold finish to items. And that obviously led him straight to counterfeiting money. He's not going back to dildo watch peddling. He realized that there was this whole wonderful area uh, of money, actual coins, that were, after all, just disks of metal. And if you could take a, a chunk of cheap metal, like lead or tin or something, and cover it with a skim of silver or what have you, all of a sudden, you had a shilling that only cost you a penny or two. You know, that's a nice rate of return. Chaloner already knew the basics after his apprenticeship in Birmingham, and he was comfortable working with hot metal. But though Chaloner was proficient in making those Birmingham groats, the real money was in the higher-value coins that were a lot more difficult to fake. And of course, our boy Chaloner is after the real money. To do that, he needed a team. It turned out that Chaloner was both good at the technical side of counterfeiting coins, and he seems to have been a reasonably successful leader of small groups. He built little gangs to help him make and distribute coins, certainly by the late 1680s and, and into the 1690s. He was a clever boy, our William. I mean, I think William Chaloner, he may be kind of like the George Clooney character in Ocean's Eleven. Except that, you know, he has no scruples whatsoever. Armed with street smarts and a charm that would give Clooney a run for his money, Chaloner set up his first gang. Chaloner found a teacher and partner in Patrick Coffey, a London goldsmith. It's me and you, Coffey. Coffey taught Chaloner how to prepare metal plates that would then be used to punch blanks. He taught him the art of gilding. He also taught him how to make a coin press to stamp both sides of the coin and a mold that could produce a coin with milled edges. Chaloner could now produce the plates in the press, but he needed someone more skilled to make the dies. A die is the engraved metal stamp that presses the image into the coin. And in order for the coin to pass muster, it needed to look authentic. Chaloner found his man in Thomas Taylor. Taylor, you're my man. If this were a heist movie, Taylor would be the quiet guy in spectacles who looks like a librarian. But this is a podcast, so use your imagination. In his day job, Taylor was an engraver and a printmaker who made high-quality maps. But printmaking wasn't very profitable, it seems, so he signed on to Challenger's crew. Taylor did the dye engraving, creating reproductions of gold English guineas and French pistoles, a gold coin worth about 17 English shillings. 
Challoner then tapped Coffee and his own brother-in-law, Jack Gravener, to be the guilders. Jack, I need you for some gilding. With the team assembled, the operation kicked into high gear. They made their first run of coins out of a silver alloy, melting the metal in secret in Challoner's lodgings and stamping them with the dyes Taylor made. Then Coffee and Gravener coated them in a thin layer of gold. And voila, gold coins, heavy enough and precise enough to pass. So now Challoner had thousands, thousands of pistols and guineas, all high quality and all looking as close to the real deal as possible. He now needed people to pass the coins into the market, an act called uttering. He turned to his friend, Thomas Holloway, and Holloway's wife, Elizabeth, to unload the goods on local petty criminals, setting a price of 11 shillings on each coin. Yeah, 11 shillings each. How many will you take, sir? Then he sat back, and watch as the money, real, actual, not fake money, poured in. Or, as his biographer put it, And now he seemed to have found the so much fought after philosopher's stone. Or, like Danae from Jove, had showers of gold daily falling into his lap. Everything seemed to favor his undertakings. Practically overnight, Challoner was rich, really, really rich, like move to a fancy house in a wealthy neighborhood, buy all new clothes rich. Life, for William Challoner and his gang, is going very well indeed. Now all he needs to do is keep his head down, stay ahead of the law, and keep churning out coins. And that can't be too hard. Right? This season on Newton's Law. Newton was absolutely meticulous in everything that he did. I swear that I will not reveal or discover to any person or persons whatsoever the new invention of rounding the money. So help me God. Money still continuing, exceeding scarce. So that none was paid or received, but all was on trust. The mint not supplying for common necessities. It's a very ramshackle institution by this point in history. Now England hath been more grieved with clipped and counterfeit money than any other country. Everybody was degrading the coinage because it was in such a poor state anyway. I saw in William Challoner's brother-in-law's house cutters and tools, instruments proper for coining. Nor am I provided with any competent assistance to enable me to grapple with an undertaking so vexatious and dangerous as this that despite loathing this actual work, is doing an awful lot of it in a way that you might expect from a police inspector and a judge and prosecution today in many ways. Damn my blood. I'd have been out by now if it weren't for him. He's a rogue. Newton's Law is a production of iHeartRadio. It's written and hosted by me, Linda Rodriguez-McRobbie, our senior producer is Ryan Murdoch. Our producer is Emily Marinoff. Our executive producer is Jason English. Original music by Elise McCoy, with editing help from Mary Dew. Sound design and mixing by Jeremy Thal. Research and fact-checking by me and Jocelyn Sears. Voice acting by Keith Fleming, Mark McDonald, Robert Jack, and Austin Rodriguez-McRobbie. Special thanks to Chris Barker, Dr. Patricia Farah, and Tom Levinson. 
Special thanks to Mangesh Hatikudur and Finiflex Sound Studios. Our show logo is designed by Lucy Quintanilla. Thanks for listening. Exotic parrots, exotic birds, exotic birds. It's half price. <laughs> PlayStation 4, miss. Just fell off a truck. <laughs> Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.